Father, we are so thankful for giving us the privilege of gathering today on the Lord's Day to worship you. We thank you so much for giving us gifted musicians to lead us in song. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that as the word of God is preached, that you would send your spirit. Lord, I confess that nothing good will happen right now unless you send your spirit. There's nothing I can do to change anyone's heart or life this morning. I'm powerless, as all of us are. Only you can change us by your spirit through the word. So do that for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me ask a question. What exactly is war? War is defined as a conflict uh, that has claimed more than 1,000 lives. Uh, Of the past 3,400 years of recorded history, humans have been at peace for a meager 268 years, which is roughly 8% of recorded history. Most of our history has been a history of violence, not peace. At least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century alone. World history has known very little conflict or very little peace. There's the absence of peace between nations, but there's also the absence of peace between individuals. People are at war with each other, at war with siblings, spouses, coworkers, neighbors. Corporations are at war. Church members are often at war. Ethnicities are at war. Maybe you're in conflict with someone right now. Then there is the lack of inner peace. No matter how hard we try, uh, as a race, many of us cannot experience lasting peace. Peace is incredibly elusive for the human race, which brings us to the good news uh, of our verses this morning. In these verses, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, offers everyone, everywhere, true and lasting peace or shalom. Now, the original audience needed to hear about this offer of peace. Why? They're on the brink of a great storm, and they're about to be tempted to be very, very fearful. And that's because their leader is about to be falsely arrested, falsely tried, and then murdered. In the midst of all that, Jesus wants them to experience supernatural peace. In the midst of significant trials and adversity, Jesus offers all of us peace this morning, which raises the question, how many of us want peace? A few of us. Christ offers it. Three points this morning. The nature of peace, the contrast of peace, and the grounds of peace. First is the nature of peace. What exactly is this peace that Christ is offering? Uh, This word peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, and that word shalom is an incredibly rich word in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. That word shalom is a great summary of what God does in the Old Testament uh, to save his people. Uh, Shalom is one of the key images of salvation in the whole Bible. And shalom, uh, the word peace, is more than just an absence of conflict. Shalom also means universal, worldwide human flourishing. Shalom includes at least three components. Uh, Shalom includes peace with God. 
Shalom includes the peace of God, and shalom includes peace with others. Let's look at each one of those aspects of peace for a moment. Uh, Shalom means peace with God. Most fundamentally, what you and I need is peace with God, shalom with God Almighty, the holy and righteous and just God of the Bible, and thankfully God's made a way for us to experience that peace with him. Romans 5 verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If you're not a Christian this morning, you are in the most perilous situation imaginable. You, because of your sin, are at war with Almighty God, a war that you will never, ever, ever win. Almighty God is almighty. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just. And our sins separate us from him. There's not peace, there's hostility. We are enemies of God before conversion, but praise be to God, he's made a way for us to be at peace with him, and that is through our Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus can experience peace with God. And if you have peace with God, your greatest problem in life and for all eternity has been solved, which means you can experience peace all the time. Shalom includes peace with God. Shalom also includes the peace of God. Peace with God and the peace of God. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Again, the Apostle Paul says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses All understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a promise. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. These verses, by the way, are the most underlined verses or highlighted verses in all the Bible apps that are out there. Did you know that? That means that most people are not experiencing this type of peace. They want this peace. These are the most popular verses in the Bible based on verses that are underlined the most. And what Paul is describing here is a wonderful and glorious supernatural peace that defies explanation. And Christ is offering this to us. One of my favorite heroes in church history is Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've mentioned many times in here. He pastored a very large church in downtown London right during World War II. It was called Westminster Chapel. It was a couple blocks from Buckingham Palace. And on a Sunday morning, he was preaching, and all the air raid sirens went off as the Nazi planes flew over London, dropping their bombs. In the middle of church, And Martin Lloyd-Jones just kept praying. It was the pastoral prayer during the service, and he kept praying. And they could hear the bombs getting closer and closer and closer and closer to Westminster Chapel. 
And these bombs made this, this whistling noise as they dropped. So they could actually, they could hear the bombs falling and then exploding and the ground shaking all across London. And Lloyd-Jones just kept on praying. It was a long pastoral prayer. He kept praying. And then they heard one of these bombs come falling out of the sky and it literally landed right across the street. But it was a dud. Didn't go off. But the whole church shook and plaster and dust fell off the ceiling and hit all the the members of the church as they were sitting there as Dr. Lloyd-Jones was praying. And when that bomb landed right across the street, his prayer paused for about two seconds. And guess what he did? He kept on praying (laughs) like nothing happened as bombs were dropping all around them, literally. How was he able to experience that level of peace? Philippians 4, 6, and 7. He was experiencing supernatural peace in the midst of insanely difficult and trying times. Shalom includes peace with God. Shalom includes the peace of God. And shalom includes peace with others. Ephesians 2.14, Paul writes, For he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. This describes the peace that God works between warring parties. Here it's Jew and Gentile. And that friction was incredibly volatile. Jews and Gentiles hated each other in the first century. And The Apostle Paul is saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is able to make peace between warring parties. The only hope in our culture for eradicating racism is the gospel. That's it. That's it. And God promises us peace. Shalom is peace with God, the peace of God, and peace with others. And shalom is so much more, more on shalom in a moment. That's a good starting place. Jesus offers us this peace. He says, again, in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. That's the kind of peace he's offering to you and I. This is quite a contrast to the peace that the world offers, which brings us to the second point. First, the nature of peace, and second is the contrast of peace. Look with me again at John 14, 27. Jesus says, peace, shalom, I leave with you, and my shalom I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. The world does promise peace, but it never, ever delivers on that promise. The peace the world offers is temporary at best. By contrast, the peace that Christ offers lasts for all eternity. Well, how does the world offer or seek peace? Some seek peace in alcohol, hoping if they drink enough, they'll experience some kind of peace, absence of conflict, absence of sorrow or tears. Others seek peace in marijuana. One thinks of peace of mind cannabis on North Division. Others seek peace through breathing techniques, yoga, transcendental meditation, self-help books or some other New Age technique. Some of these techniques may provide some peace for a moment, but the peace never lasts. Others seek peace through 
binge-watching shows. They watch show after show after show because when they're watching those shows, they don't have to think about their problems. But eventually the show is over and that temporary peace is over. Still others think that if I can just make more money, then I won't have any problems. I can pay for this, pay for that, buy this, buy that, I'll experience peace if I can just make a little more money. Others seek peace in shopping, listening to music, or sitting in hot tubs. Yet none of these techniques provides lasting peace. When I was in college, I was an RA in my dorm, resident advisor, and it was against our dorm rules to burn anything, including incense or candles, in dorm rooms. So one day I was doing my rounds uh, in the dorms, Waller Hall at WSU, it was an all-guys dorm, and I noticed that one of the students was burning incense in his dorm. So I very kindly asked him to please stop burning incense because that's against the hall policy. And he gave me this incredibly graphic and powerful death stare. And I realized like a day or two later that burning incense was part of his religion. And so he saw me as persecuting him. As a result, he began to, to do voodoo on me, literally. He had a little doll that supposedly represented me and began to poke it with things. <laughs> How many of you have been voodooed before? Okay. So whenever I saw him around, he would give me these awful death stares, like he wanted to kill me. But fortunately, he was a lot smaller than me, so I didn't feel all that threatened. But there was a significant amount of hostility between myself and this student. A little bit later on, I was, I was sharing this story with someone. He said, what you guys need to do, you guys need to go sit in a TP and do some sweat bath therapy together, and that will bring you guys at peace. <laughs> and I thought to myself, there's no way that my voodoo friend is going to sit in a TP with me and have a sweat bath, whatever sweat baths are, together. That was not going to bring peace between myself and this particular person. The world has no clue on how to bring people at peace, how to provide peace, whether it's inner peace or peace between people or shalom in general. The world cannot provide peace. If we want peace, we must go to the Prince of Peace. John 14, 27, again, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. It's not gonna come through sweat baths in teepees. Then he says these amazing words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. He knows that he's about to be arrested and crucified and they're gonna be tempted to be troubled and afraid. But he says, let out your hearts be troubled or let them be afraid. How can he say this? To these disciples because he knows that what's going to happen on the cross is going to enable them to experience shalom, peace with God, peace with others, inner peace. Is your heart troubled or afraid this morning? Maybe it's troubled because of some financial crisis. Maybe it's troubled as you think about the future of our nation 
and all the political uncertainty and the increasing loss of freedom. Maybe your heart's troubled as you think about a diagnosis of a loved one. Maybe your heart's troubled as you think about going back to work on Monday knowing that you have to work with an evil boss. In the midst of all that, Jesus is offering us peace, supernatural peace, shalom. Maybe you're thinking, well, Dave, I understand the offer. That sounds great. But what in the world is this based on? What does Christ ground this offer in or on? And that brings us to the third point. First is the nature of peace. Second is the contrast of peace. And third is the grounds of peace. What is our peace grounded in? A few amazing things. Our peace is grounded in Christ's ascension. Look with me at John 14, 28. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus says, you know that I'm about to go and die on the cross and then ascend to the Father. I just told you that. My death, resurrection, and ascension should be the cause of great rejoicing in you, but instead you're fearful and grumpy. That's what he's saying to the disciples. He's basically saying, look, my ascension should lead to great joy in you. It should lead to peace. Well, why? Why? Christ's ascension means that the Son is returning to the Father's right hand. He's returning in power and glory and in victory. From the Father's right hand, the Son will permanently intercede for us. Amazing. Right now, Jesus Christ is praying for you if you're a Christian. And from the Father's right hand, the Son will pour out the Spirit on all the saints. And from the Father's right hand, the Son will rule and reign over all things as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is sovereign over all that he has made. He is ruling and reigning from that place of authority and position and status. Our peace is grounded in the fact that Christ is right now at the Father's right hand. He has ascended to the Father, and from there he is ruling and reigning over everything. Everything. Every single detail of your life is under the sovereign sway of Almighty King Jesus. I need to pause for a moment and deal with a thorny theological phrase in verse 28. Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Does that mean that Jesus is not equal with the Father? No. This verse is a favorite verse of Unitarians, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others who, think, who wanted to, to deny uh, the deity of Jesus and his full equality with the Father. But the main problem with this view is simply this. The rest of John and the rest of the Bible, for that matter, says in numerous ways and in numerous places that Jesus is equal with the Father. He's fully God. He's divine. The only thing that he's saying here, he's simply making the point that in his present state as a human, in his non-glorified state, the Father is more glorious than he is. Doesn't that make sense? Back to the point. Our peace is grounded in Christ's ascension. Since Christ ascended to the Father, you will receive 
the Holy Spirit, which allows us to experience that supernatural peace described in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Since Christ ascended to the Father's right hand, again, he is seated on a divine throne, and because he's ruling and reigning from that throne, we can experience peace. And since he went to the Father's right hand, he is now interceding for us, which enables us to experience peace. Our peace is grounded in Christ's ascension. In addition, our peace is grounded in Christ's victory. Look with me at verses 30 and 31. He says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Now, the ruler of this world is a reference to Satan. The only reason he's allowed to rule for a brief season is to accomplish God's purposes. Even Satan is under the sovereign sway of Almighty God. But he's called the ruler of this world by Jesus, Um, But then Jesus says that he has no claim on me. Well, why does Satan have no claim on Jesus? Because, according to verse 31, Jesus is perfect. He always obeys the Father's commands. And because he's perfect, Satan has no claim on him. Satan cannot charge him with any wrongdoing. He always does what is pleasing to his Father. He's always obeying his Father. He's perfect, and because he's perfect, when he dies, he'll rise from the grave. Satan has nothing on Jesus. Christ will emerge victorious from the coming crucifixion by rising from the grave. Here's the good news. Christ's victory over Satan becomes our victory. Now, I've been a Seahawk fan since I was born. I was born in 1976, the year the Seahawks were established. It was a sign I was meant to be a fan. I used to go with my dad, this is back in the 80s, out to Cheney to watch the Seahawks practice. Back in the Dave Craig, um, Steve Largent era. I had a massive Steve Largent poster on my wall most of my childhood until that was replaced by a Pete Sampras poster. If you don't know who that is, we probably can't be friends. Do you remember when the Seahawks were really, really good? Do you remember that? Roughly 10 years ago? Let me take you back to February 2nd, 2014. What happened on that fateful day? The Seahawks won the Super Bowl, destroying the Denver Broncos. They were victorious over Peyton Manning and company. Yes. Do you remember that season? Okay, like most of you, I watched every minute of every game. I watched the press conferences, the post-game shows. I even took my boys to Seattle to watch practice. Do you remember Blue Friday? That's kind of gone now, unfortunately. What was Blue Friday? All the Seahawk fans wore their Seahawk gear on Fridays. I'm seeing blank stares. Who, who remembers Blue Friday? Okay, there's, wow. Not many Seahawk fans in the house this morning. Why was everyone in Washington so excited about the Seahawk success? 
because the Seahawks are our team. I mean, most of our teams, I guess, this morning. Most Washingtonians, they're our team. When the Seahawks lost, we felt like we lost. In fact, I remember, I remember that second Super Bowl, the year later, when they lost, and they shouldn't have lost. And I went to bed that night depressed. And the next morning, I woke up depressed. I wanted to cry, but I thought, I'm a grown man, I can't cry. And it's just football. But when they lost, I lost. But when they won, I felt like I won. Because I'm part of the 12th man, I'm one of the fans. Their victory was my victory. Christ's victory is my victory. Christ's victory is your victory. You're not just a fan. You're in Christ. When Jesus says, Satan has no claim on me, you and I can say, because we're in Christ, because his victory is our victory, Satan has no claim on me. Which means, when Satan comes to accuse you and tell you how guilty and rotten and worthless you are, you can say, oh no, Satan. Right now, God the Father sees me as righteous, as perfect, and as justified as his own son. So Satan, get behind me. Stop lying to me. Jesus Christ is victorious. His victory is my victory, and it's your victory. Our peace is grounded in Christ's ascension. Our peace is grounded in Christ's victory, and our peace is grounded in Christ's obedience. John 14, 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus' obedience to the Father signifies his great love for the Father. He obeyed the Father because he loves the Father. And remember, in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit devised this glorious plan to redeem all of creation from the effects of sin. And Christ agreed to come and obey the Father and fulfill that plan, uh, bringing shalom and redemption to all of creation. There was a massive reclamation project planned thousands of years ago. And this plan was not merely to save humans. It was to save the entire cosmos. Salvation is cosmic in scope. Christ came to bring shalom to all the things that were affected or touched by the fall. We often underestimate the cosmic scope of salvation. It's wonderful that God saves humans from wrath, from sin, and from judgment. Praise God. Aren't you glad? But God also is saving all of creation. All the things touched by sin will be redeemed someday. As the great Christmas hymn goes, Jesus came to make his blessings flow. How far? As far as the curse is found. 
which means that shalom will reach to every single square inch of creation. Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Paul says that Christ will reconcile all things to himself, meaning all of creation. Whatever the curse has touched, King Jesus will redeem. This means he will bring shalom to everything. Mountains, lakes, rivers, streams, and trees will all be redeemed. What's that gonna look like? He'll redeem science, architecture, dance, sports, engineering, literature, baking, education, movies, all things will be redeemed by King Jesus through his obedience to his Father. Shalom is universal human flourishing, not just the absence of conflict, but shalom happens when everything is in its right place and everything is rejoicing and working together in perfect harmony, and someday that will happen. One scholar says this, shalom is multidimensional, complete well-being, Physical, psychological, social, and spiritual. It flows from all of one's relationships being put right with God, within oneself, and with others. Everything ruined by sin. Everything will be redeemed. Someday, the peace of God, the shalom of God, will stretch to every square inch of the cosmos all because of the obedience of King Jesus. Our shalom, our peace, is based on Christ's obedience to his Father. When will this happen? It hasn't happened yet. If it has happened, we're in trouble. It'll happen when Christ returns someday and recreates everything for his glory as the result of his finished work. In the meantime, we can experience peace knowing that everything will be redeemed someday. If we're Christians, the best is always yet to come. A friend of mine was recently hired as a lead pastor of a large, beautiful church in an amazing location in Pennsylvania. This church just underwent a $14 million building project. It's all paid for. 200-year-old church. My friend took the job about a year ago. Things are going really, really well. They were experiencing significant vitality, gospel growth, new families coming, young families coming. But the old senior pastor stuck around and began to stir things up for whatever reason. And the old senior pastor was able to get a bunch of members who didn't even go to the church anymore to sign a petition to essentially call a meeting to get my friend fired as the lead pastor. To avoid causing all kinds of church splits, my friend resigned this last week. And he, and by the way, he resigned and most of the staff and elders resigned with him. The question is, can my friend experience peace in the midst of this significant church conflict. More than likely, a lot of the staff are gonna lose their homes because they lost their salaries. There's a lot at stake here. Can they experience peace 
Supernatural peace. John 14, 27. Jesus says to all of us, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Will not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you offer us peace through your son, Jesus Christ. I know there are many here this morning who need to hear this promise of peace from you, Jesus. Lord, thank you that no matter what we're facing, we can experience supernatural peace. And I pray now for all those in our congregation this morning who need that supernatural peace, that you would fill them with your spirit and allow them to trust you and to experience shalom, even though their lives could be falling apart all around them. Thank you for peace, peace with you, peace within, and peace with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.